الجزيرة بودكاست German police have disrupted a far-right plot to seize power. They arrested dozens of people on Wednesday, but as right-wing parties win more votes and even power in some EU states, are we seeing a broader shift to the right in European politics? I'm Nastasia Tay, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's now bring in our guests. In Berlin, we have Ben Aris. He is the founder and editor-in-chief of BNE IntelliNews. In Rome, we have Eleonora Polly. She's the head of analysis at the Centers for European Policy Network. And in Northampton, a UK, Paul Jackson, a professor in the history of radicalism and extremism at the University of Northampton, and also the author of Pride in Prejudice, Understanding Britain's Extreme Right. A warm welcome to each of you. Thank you for joining us on Inside Story. Ben, I'm going to start with you in Berlin. Uh, the, the arrest of a former member of the Bundestag and a member of the AFD and that must be sending shockwaves through Germany. Just how fringe is the group that we're talking about? It's pretty fringe. Uh, and of course, everyone's talking about this. It came out of left field, and it's the last thing you expect in somewhere as organized and democratic as Germany is a, a coup d'etat by a former prince, uh, or indeed a real prince. Um, however, it's a pretty fringe group. Um, the police, when they're commenting on and looking at it, saying that they were actually extremely disorganized um, that the plans they had were not realistic and that this really wasn't going to go anywhere I mean, there was the chances of success were, were nearly zero nevertheless um it sort of represents an undercurrent here i mean there's a group of people um in the reichsburger it's an organization which has been lobbying for a long time and it says that um, germany should have its sovereignty back that it's we should go back to a monarchy and the um the leader of this group uh, heinrich the third um he was intending to come back as some sort of ruler uh in a sort of monarchic monarchic sense um and take germany back to its you know its former glory when in pre pre-war uh when it was a bunch of principalities and a senior and, and powerful country in europe and there's some sympathy with that um but really at the end of the day i think most people are considering these people to be a bunch of fringe extreme Nutters. Sure. Well, the group, I believe, was also influenced by what's been happening in the US, the rise of QAnon, the attack on the Capitol. Uh, Eleonora, let me ask you, how have events across the Atlantic affected or influenced groups, far right and extremist groups in, in Europe? Have they been emboldened, perhaps? Well, I think, you know, radicalism in Europe, especially right wing radicalism in Europe is as is on history. It is well, it is related somehow to you know what what happened in the U.S., but it has its own reasons and and, and history. I would say that in the EU is mostly related to a sort of social malcontent of discontent within you know the economic governance, um, and I think you know it's also um, a matter of sovereignty. You know, in many European member countries, people are asking their sovereignty back against the EU or against you know the traditional political parties. So it has, you know, some connections, but still it has its own, you know, path. Well, this in particular was a known group, and I know many of their members have been quite open about their beliefs and also how they themselves were radicalized, many on social media portals. I believe the pandemic has created plenty of time for that. So, Paul, let me ask you, you work on radicalization. Would this have not been possible with the technological shifts that we've seen? Well, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, certainly um, technology uh, is really uh, important to think about the way in which the far right space operates today. 
Um, but also this is a group that's got a rooting in a kind of a longer sense of tradition um, uh, and uh, also um, other factors other than technology I think are important to think about, not least the impact uh, of the pandemic uh, and the ways in which that's changed um, uh, spaces like um, uh, this that are also driven by conspiracy theories uh, as well. So I think oh, there's a kind of a cluster of things that are important to think about here. You mentioned these conspiracy theories. A lot of them are around some kind of shadow power structure, secretly controlling government. Ben, how common are conspiracy theories when it comes to radicalizing people across Europe? They're very common. Um, but a lot of these theories, I think, are justifications for you know groups that um, have predisposed um, uh, in opposition to, to the status quo, the, the way things are. And um, they're symptomatic of, like, there are some serious problems and some very large changes that have been going on. And I think a lot of these extreme groups, their reactions to things like um, migrants we have. I mean, here in Germany, we had in the 90s about 8 million Russians arrive. And then more recently, during the Syria war, we had a million Syrians arrive. And of course, there's a large Turkish population that's been here for a long time. And very recently, another 300,000 Ukrainians have arrived. And so that all creates a, a background whereby the, the, the Germans at some point, some of them start asking like, what are these foreigners doing here in our very comfortable land? And we're spending money on them, we're giving housing to them, we're, we're giving them support. Mm. And it's that that the populists play on and the conspiracy theories. I mean, if you, if you look at the, um, the, the agenda of Heinrich XIII, they're talking about how the sovereignty, the Germanness of Germany mm. has been destroyed. And that's what they want to go back to. It's a sort of return to Germany for the Germans. And the conspiracy theories then is you just get into the details of like, how do we get here? And so uh, in, in Heinrich III's case, they're talking about a deep states and they're talking about, um, I don't know, international forces that are imposing foreign companies on here to make profit. Or it may be they're focused on things like the, the, the migration. Um, and you've also got economic mm -hmm. inequality here, which is sort of eating away and, and people feel like they're being done down and that other people are taking advantage of them. And they come up with theories in order to explain how that works. Sure. Well, this feels like a good time to take a bit of a step back from radical groups per, per se and, and look at political parties, because we have seen a, a broad shift towards the far right across a number of countries in Europe. And I, I'm curious because you mentioned the word populist there, Ben. A lot of these are described as far-right populist groups. And, and I want to spend a moment on the idea of populism. So it derives from this belief that there's a rift between the people and then some kind of elite who are plotting against it. And, and then the populist leaders themselves are the defenders of the masses. Uh, Paul, for me, that sounds like it's built on fear. Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of description of populism uh, is really um, uh, interesting. I mean, one thing to think about is that that type of um, theme of populism can be found in uh, interwar forms of fascism um, uh, as well, which propose similar ideas that the, the mainstream political systems are corrupt um, uh, and that they need to be replaced by something different. One of the main differences with today's populists uh, is that they operate within the rules uh, of the game, but in a quite a radicalized way. So they don't try to overturn democracy but they do push against uh, many aspects of what we might call liberalism. Um, so um, that can be really um, uh, problematic. Um, uh, and the other thing to think about is the way in which this kind of um, uh, politics has shifted and become much more normal uh, over the past mm -hmm. 20 years or so. I mean, when Jean-Marie Le Pen went for a presidential campaign in the early 2000s, this was internationally reported uh, as um, something very strange, very unusual, um, uh, and it was a very, very significant news story uh, and event. 
um, where Marine Le Pen um, uh, has made much more successful uh, campaigns in the last couple of French presidential elections. This has become quite normalised um, um, uh, situations and isn't really talked about as being very odd or unusual. So populism of this type has become much more accepted within European politics uh, over the last um, uh, 20 years. And it's had a variety of impacts from um, uh, things like Brexit um, uh, in the UK to um, helping to normalise um, cultures of um, uh, Islamophobia mm. um, uh, and so on. And it's also helped to bring in languages that used to be much more the purview of the very extreme right, such as things like the Great Replacement Theory, mm. the idea that Europeans are under attack through some sort of conspiracy. So, um, uh, as I say, this has become much more established as part of the, the mainstream sphere of politics than it used to be 20 years ago. We'll look at some of the drivers that you've you've mentioned there, Paul, in just a moment. But I, I feel like it might be worth taking a moment to look at the demographics of the people who are who are driving the shift, because that gives us a bit of a clue. I was looking at a study that suggests it isn't necessarily deprivation. We've talked a little bit here about the economic situation being a driver, but that it's not necessarily deprivation that's driving people to vote for far-right parties, but more the fear of deprivation, which suggests that they have something to lose, right? Eleonora, it isn't those who are living in poverty who are voting for these parties. Yes, I think it's the, one of the elements that we have to consider is this constant fear by, you know, the working class and the middle class to lose more welfare. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why all these anti all these anti-migration rhetoric has been raising. Because people are afraid to lose, you know, their welfare and also are afraid to lose their cultural identity. And these are exactly the points where, you know, those far-right parties or movements are building their propaganda using, you know, populist rhetoric in the sense that they provide, you know, easy answers to, you know, much bigger problems. This is one of the reasons. The other reason is also that, is it true that traditional parties, unfortunately, are unable to provide, you know, effective answers in the sense that if you look at many European countries, right-wing parties like centre-right or center-left parties, their policies are most of the time not really different. Mm. So, you know, voters, they don't find, you know, they don't see any difference voting, you know, for this party or the other, you know, when it comes to, you know, in, in, um, um, uh, do, you mm. know, some actions, you know, in order to change the situation or to provide solutions. On the other hand, you have this, you know, the merging of this movement, which are much, much vocal, which, you know, um, put themselves closer to the people who are suffering because, you know, there is also the other element that is often used is the vic victimization. So, you know, normal people are the victim of the system. They are the, the outsider from the benefits of, you know, economic globalizations or, you know, globalization sure. per se. Eleonora, sorry. Sure. I mean, just there, though, you, you mentioned, you touched on a point that I'd like to dig into a little bit uh, because you suggested that this is a new movement. But a number of these parties, like France's National Rally, for instance, now called the National Rally, they've been around for a long time. It's their, what, 50th anniversary, I believe, this year. But they were tiny to begin with, and they've gradually gained support. It, they've notoriously been very vocal about immigration issues. We've talked a little bit about that. But it feels like it goes beyond that to, to more of a values question. Uh, ben, let me throw this to you. I'm curious because you alluded to something there when you were talking about Germany and, and the idea of sovereignty in an old Germany. How much has a generational shift contributed to this? I think quite a lot. Um, I mean, Germany 
Berlin, I mean, since I've been living here in 2003, has changed. Um, when I came, you had to speak German, no one spoke English. Um, and over the last 20 years, um, it's transformed uh, into an international city and everybody speaks English. And moreover, even if you speak German to them, they answer you in English uh, because there's so many foreigners here. People are starting to um, invest into it. And the, um, the younger generation are sort of bought into that to some extent. But at the same time, this thing of sovereignty um, is, is still very strong and there's this tension there. I mean, at Peony, we, we cover um, Eastern and Central Europe, and there it's even more noticeable mm. that the um, the reaction against it, that there's a fault line, a values fault line, and to the left of it in traditional EU in the West, um, it's much more liberal, and um, the ideas of democracy and multicultural tolerance um, is prevalent everywhere. However, as soon as you go past uh, Austria into Central Europe, to countries like Poland, um, Czech Republic and and um, and Hungary, they're they're based much more on an orthodox uh, traditional mm. set of values. Where Hungary's for the Hungarians, but it's also about family values that they're almost you know universally and um, homophobic, and so people doing gay prides over there in the Central Europe and down into the Balkans is even stronger. Um, and there's this sort of clash, and that's definitely amongst the young people too, um, because. They're looking for a new identity now that, you know, there's been these huge changes and the countries, particularly in Central Europe, um, have now grown. They've come out of the transformation that was the end of the socialist bloc. And now they're quite strong. And I think you're seeing people like Orbán or um, Kaczynski in Poland are pushing for this, you know, new uh, Poland, this new identity within Europe as a European, but they're pushing back against the rest of Europe as well and resisting the values because part of the European Union project is about mm. values and they've taken the money but they've rejected the values to some extent and they're selling that to the young people and the young people are buying it because the previous history is socialist history is meaningless to them. Uh, ben, I just want to follow up on that cultural fault line there because I know a number of people have defined this whole clash to be uh, against woke culture, so to speak, this kind of backlash against that, if we want to term it that. I know that it feels like there's a, a constituency of people that perhaps feels that they don't really understand the world that they're living anymore. So are people now no longer voting on the economy? Are they now voting on, on cultural divides? It seems to me very much so. I mean, as uh, you know, we cover everything up to and including Moscow and beyond. And the further east you go, um, the stronger the reaction is against the woke culture. If you listen to what Putin said, you know, he, he, uh, he ridicules it. Um, and actually it's a rallying point for the Russians, the young Russians as well, behind him as he says, look at you know, Berlin and it's Christopher Street gay parade. Um, this is ridiculous. Um, and there's a lot of sympathy for that view in Central and Eastern Europe and down into the Balkans, it's the same thing, if not stronger. And uh, uh, the... The woke culture versus the traditional orthodox but then again when the leaders in czech or hungary or poland or serbia are selling these ideas to their people um the, tr the traditional family orthodox values are very easy sell whereas the sort of more woke liberal um, multicultural multi-gender denominational cultures that's much harder sell or rather mm -hmm. it's it doesn't make much sense to the people there so it's easier this is one of the reasons i think is driving people like Orban, who came in um, in Orban in Hungary, who came in as a sort of liberal reformer and is now increasingly further right in order to solidify his control. And it works very well. Well, we saw a shift from 
well, centre or left to the right around Brexit in the UK. That really became a flashpoint for, for the right. And, and I'm curious, Paul, we heard rhetoric then from Boris Johnson about essentially making Britain great again, if we want to, to use that phrase. Is this about trying to distance itself from the values of the European project, as we've been talking about? I, mean, I think that's a really interesting um, question. I mean, I'm thinking about you know, sort of Boris Johnson as somebody who kind of um, used uh, aspects and elements uh, of a populist um, uh, style of politics was, you know, sort of well noted uh, on, uh, and certainly there was clear borrowings there. Um, I think that I mean, it's just to go back to kind of the previous point um, uh, as well around wokeness uh, as well. I think we kind of, uh, as analysts, we need to be careful about not kind of taking on those kind of binaries between woke culture versus anti-woke culture, sure. to be honest. I think that most people don't live in that kind of um, uh, reality. I think uh, don't identify with either kind of uh, category. Um, most people um, are more moderated uh, and don't kind of uh, have those um, um, polarized positions. The far right, on the other hand, really likes to play on that sense that there's an us and them, there's kind of neat, simplistic binaries for understanding um, uh, the world. So. To relate that to Brexit, then there was a kind of a, a neat binary uh, around um, uh, um, freeing Britain from um, a dominating um, European project. Um, but um, as I say, those are kind of messages that might uh, appeal to people, especially in a kind of a stark uh, and pithy kind of social media kind of context and language. Sure. But if we're not just to kind of talk about and describe the far right, but also analyse it, challenge it a bit, then I think we need to say that those categories themselves, those simple binaries themselves, are really actually super problematic. Moreover, when you kind of look at wider work surveying societies, cultures, most people don't operate in that kind of um, uh, sphere anyway. And as media commentators, mm -hmm. if we don't kind of problematize that, then, that's, then that in itself is a problem. Well, moving away from binaries, let me ask you, Eleanor, I'm curious how Georgia Maloney is now viewed, not only in Italy, but also by the EU, because her party had its roots in fascism, but now it's being described as a post-fascist party. She's professed her support for the EU, her support for NATO. Is a normalization of the far right happening within European politics then? Well, I don't know if there is a normalization, but there is the idea that, you know, the EU needs Italy to be working, to be, you know, on the side of the West in this specific moment. So, of course, since this, this government has been elected, and at the moment, this government is not perpetuating any politics which is against, you know, the EU or, you know, NATO or the Western Alliance. So somehow, you know, the EU is working with Meloni. Um, on the other hand, Meloni is playing, you know, um, a sort of uh, normal, normal, normal game in the sense that she is adopting politics within, you know, the European framework. She is not making, you know, extremely dangerous uh, declarations when it comes to foreign policy. I think, you know, the main effect of its of her government are felt, you know, within Italy in the sense that she has raised, you know, the anti-migration rhetorics and the idea, you know, that we need to protect Italian citizens and we need to provide for Italian citizens. But it's mainly rhetoric in the sense that when it comes to real actions, nothing has really changed much for the moment. Sure. Well, I want to take a moment to look at what might happen in the future, because we've talked about this being driven by 
the economy and economic crises, and we know that income inequality is rising, there's been a pandemic, there's a war in Ukraine, there's an economic crisis, no end in sight. The migrant crisis is continuing, and that's also been a real flashpoint. Presumably then, Eleonora, these parties are, are going to continue making gains. Well, uh, yes, it depends on how traditional parties will be able to reform themselves and, you know, provide, you know, uh, more concrete answers to the people. I think also one of the problems is that Europe is an old continent and the older generation has been seeing, you know, so many, you know, shifts in the way of living, you know, economic, cultural uh, and, and whatever. So um, this is making them, those, you know, group of people uh, very much in fear of, of any change or uh, of losing, you know, their welfare. And those are the ones supporting mostly, you know, anti-establishment anti movement. But this doesn't mean that in the future those parties will remain in power. I believe, you know, for the moment, since you are living in a, in a moment of shift at national, in my case, but also um, European mm -hmm. international level, I think, you know, those parties will be put at test. But, you know, um, the, the chance for them to survive is really limited, especially because in the case of Italy, for instance, they are perpetuating the same traditional politics than previous parties. Well, it'll be a very interesting to see how this all plays out and also where the European project goes from here. Well, thank you to all of our guests, Ben Aris, Eleonora Polly and Paul Jackson. Well, that's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Usama Aloni, Lara Hamidi, Iseba Marzayeva and Jimmy Getzoen. Studio sound was by Sasha Andreevich. The program was edited by Alexander Otasevich, Lin Yuan, and Joda Fleas. Please be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening.